0: For Thursday, January 21st, 2021, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, some people find themselves dealing with COVID-19 months after first being infected.
1: Chronic conditions often become minimized. We'll say things like we know individuals with high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes, and we just accept that as a basic way of life. But these are things that could potentially be prevented. Dr.
0: Jermaine Jackson from Piedmont Healthcare joins me to discuss what turns COVID-19 into a chronic condition for some long haulers and how he's working to treat them. That's next.
1: Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org.
0: Some people infected by the coronavirus months ago are still dealing with health problems. And around the country, including here in Atlanta, clinics are opening up to help these COVID-19 long haulers. One of those is Piedmont Healthcare's Pulmonary COVID-19 Recovery Clinic. Dr. Jermaine Jackson is its director, and he's with me now for more. Dr. Jackson, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. So I want to start by talking about the experiences that you've had dealing with COVID patients kind of early on in their course of disease. I know we're here to talk about kind of the long hauler, but I'm just curious, you know, as a pulmonologist who's been working with these patients potentially for a long time now, talk to me just a little bit about what you've seen when people come to you
1: kind of first presenting with COVID. Yeah, so... When this first hit our shores, uh, this was a new phenomenon for us. Uh, It was something that we were not prepared for because, again, none of us had really faced a large pandemic. In fact, we haven't seen anything like this in the last 100 years. Early on, we weren't exactly sure how to treat these people. Um, We've gathered a lot of information over the last nine, 10 plus months. We're still not at a place where we have a definitive treatment for those with COVID, but we feel a lot better in terms of how we support these individuals through their infectious or disease process. In the beginning, we saw a lot of death and a lot of carnage. And unfortunately, uh, during the most recent surge, we saw a significant spike in that death and carnage. But the good news is, is that we've had an opportunity to, to implement a vaccine over the last month, which we think is going to change the course of the disease. And as long as we continue to strive and put forth the mitigation strategies along with the help of the, the vaccine, I do think that there's a glimmer of hope uh, in the near future.
0: So people who maybe present to you with COVID and y'all are able to treat them and get them out the door in a reasonable amount of time, maybe tell me the story of a patient or two that that's been their disease course.
1: The good news in this pandemic and as it relates to this virus uh, is that the overall majority, 80-85% of individuals will get the disease and they will not have long-term sequelae problems associated with that. And that's something that we have experienced and seen. We do know that a portion of individuals who are actually hospitalized with the disease, roughly about 25 percent of those individuals, uh, may or may not end up in the intensive care unit. And those are the ones that we have a lot of concerns about. But if you take the overall majority, they typically have classic upper respiratory tract-like infectious symptoms, such as cough, a little bit of joint aches, what we call myalgias or muscle aches. Fever has been a classical thing that we see. And what we've done for those individuals is really just treat them what we call symptomatically, giving them things to just help with their symptoms as the body tends to fight off the virus. We've noticed that for a large portion of those people, Somewhere between seven to 10 days, they tend to bounce back and do do very well. Uh, I've seen multiple patients who've both been in the hospital as well as in the outpatient setting who have experienced that type of disease course, where it's very limited, doesn't cause them a lot of problems. You say a large majority of people, you know, maybe have this
0: short course of disease that's not too severe, but certainly there are people who have, who require more intensive care. Tell me about those patients.
1: It's about 10 to 15 percent of people who will have a devastating effect related to this. And what I mean by that is that it's the inflammatory process. It's the body trying to fight the disease and then subsequently have this overwhelming inflammation, almost like a fire in the body, that leads... Other organs to have problems specifically as it relates to COVID, we typically see that with the lungs, the heart, the kidney, and the brain. Uh, and then the other kind of problem that we saw um, early on was the the increased risk of forming blood clots. Um, you know, when we first started seeing these individuals, I can recall a story of a lady who was in the intensive care unit and she was requiring a fairly significant amount of oxygen, about sixty percent, that was going through her nose or what we call a nasal cannula. But the thing that was different about this is that she was actually watching television and talking on her smartphone to one of her girlfriends. And unfortunately, her oxygen requirements continued to go up. And I distinctly remember her making this statement after we told her that we were going to have to put on the ventilator. She told a girlfriend that was on the phone, she said, let me call you back. They're going to put me to sleep for a few days. And lo and behold, she was asleep for only a few days. She only required the mechanical ventilatory support for about three to four days, and she ultimately made it out of the hospital. But what was striking and memorable about that event was that this was different. We knew of something different and unique about this virus compared to anything certainly that we as critical care physicians or pulmonologists had faced, uh, before. And, and then we have this, I think, third aspect of
0: this kind of disease, which are these more long-term effects. And I want to start just by asking you, when you first started to notice and think about COVID-19 as more of a long-term disease, people may have heard this term long hauler, people who have seen many, many weeks, potentially months of dealing with the side effects of this disease. When did you start to notice that?
1: We started recognizing that individuals who would have the disease and subsequently recover from the acute infectious process would present several weeks later to either their primary care physician or other clinical provider and would have ongoing persistent complaints, things like fatigue, joint pains, muscle aches, shortness of breath, uh, brain fog, the inability to concentrate they were coming in with various complaints. And the only thing that had happened recently in their life was that they had been affected with COVID. And we started to think there was something to this. And for us, this probably started coming about the latter part of the summer when we recognized that this was something different. And the issue that we have right now is we call this various terms, post-acute COVID-19 syndrome or long COVID, and those people who are affected are often referred to as so-called long haulers, but there's no universally accepted nomenclature or name for this phenomenon because it's really hard to define. So for example, here in the United States, the Center for Disease Control, or CDC, often will say individuals who have persistent symptoms that last beyond four weeks after their initial infection, those are the ones that fall into the so-called long hauler syndrome category, where our friends across the pond in the UK would often say those individuals have symptoms greater than 12 weeks, which makes identifying, categorizing, and subsequently treating them somewhat difficult. But my gestalt and what we keep telling our clinicians is that for individuals who have persistent symptoms Usually greater than four to six weeks. Those are the people that we've got to start honing in and and zooming in on a little bit because those are the ones who may actually have some of these persistent symptoms that are often categorized as long COVID or long haulers.
0: We have seen people with maybe more acute COVID had many different parts of their body potentially impacted, uh, you know, their hearts, their lungs, maybe even their, their brain function. I would imagine that you're seeing that kind of wide variety of impacts too with
1: long haulers. Absolutely. So. In the initial phase, the way you contract COVID is through what we call the mucous membranes. These are parts of the body that typically line the nose or nasal cavity, the mouth or the respiratory system, and also the eyes. And so most individuals will initially have respiratory tract-like symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, loss of taste and smell. But Once in the body, what we find is that the virus will cause a reaction in the body that can affect other organs, and we've been seeing that. The classic thing that we get is just fatigue, which is really a systemic problem, meaning the whole body to some degree has been impacted. And so you just have this overwhelming feeling of fatigue or malaise, just not feeling up to yourself. Other organs that have been involved, of course, is the heart where you can get inflammation in the heart. You can even have a higher risk of heart attacks. Neurological problems that we've seen are individuals who have problems with memory loss or what we've called brain fog, the inability to truly concentrate. And then there's the psychological impact, which I think is often overlooked, but certainly important. These are individuals who have post-traumatic stress disorder, where the stress and anxiety of everything that's happened with the virus tends to linger on and give them persistent symptoms of anxiety. And trying to find content matter experts or clinicians that can help deal with those various organ systems is what most of the COVID recovery clinics across the country is all about.
0: This is Did You Wash Your
1: Hands? I'm Sam
0: Whitehead talking today with Dr. Jermaine Jackson about COVID-19 long haulers. He works with those patients at Piedmont Healthcare here in Atlanta. I would imagine that if you have patients presenting with so many different kinds of potential issues uh, following a COVID infection, it would be hard to treat. I mean, how do you go about approaching treatment for someone who, say, walks into this clinic that you all have set up? Is it mainly treating their symptoms or, or, or do these kind of issues develop into other things that we could consider disease that actually need more more serious intervention?
1: So great question. I think the approach that we've laid out is a multidisciplinary approach. Obviously, as pulmonary critical care physicians, when we see these patients, our primary goal is to number one determine how they're doing. Do they require any immediate intervention? Do they need oxygen? Uh inhalers. Once that's done, we ultimately try to do an assessment because what we know is that a small portion of these individuals can go on to have chronic lung disease. And we've learned some of that information from historical data, like the initial SARS virus or infection that occurred several years ago, as well as something called MERS, M-E-R-S, which was the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. We've seen in that cohort of individuals that a small group of them will develop chronic lung problems, and so our goal is to try to identify those individuals early and potentially intervene if necessary, if that's trying to deal with the inflammatory process, which we've utilized steroids and things of that nature for, or even potential use of what we call antifibrotic agents, which is to try to reduce any scarring uh, in the lungs that could occur with those individuals who may be at risk for that. The next portion of that is to look at these other organs, the heart, the brain, the kidney and even the psychological portions of that. And so we look at those various organs, And if we find an abnormality or we determine that you have symptoms that would be suggestive that other organs have been affected, we would then make referrals to what we like to call our clinical partners who are content matter experts in their respective disciplines of cardiology and nephrology and neurology as well as psychology. And we get you to those individuals so that they can look at you and determine if other interventions are necessary. I would imagine
0: a listener hearing this conversation would wonder, is there something about me that could set me up, predispose me to be a long hauler? Do y'all have any sense about that? I think, you know, there's this understanding that there are certain comorbidities, heart disease, diabetes that make a potentially a COVID-19 course of disease worse. Is there any kind of comorbidity that might set someone up to be a long hauler?
1: We're learning more and more about this disease with each passing day. We're actually building the plane as we fly it. Um, And so there was recently a, a little bit of data that came out to try to begin to identify who's at risk for so-called long COVID or long hauler syndrome. And you've alluded to some of those individuals, those are people who have pre-existing conditions, specifically obesity, high blood pressure, coronary disease, or diabetes. We find that that group are not only at high risk of developing the disease and having complications with the disease, but also after their recovery period, those are also individuals who have a higher risk of developing uh, long haulers. And so looking at those people, if they have any, Any of those comorbidities or disease states, those are the ones that have to think about if I've got persistent symptoms after recovering for this, could I fall into that category and should I be seeking ongoing medical attention and my answer to that is absolutely. Now what's interesting about this is that there's also a cohort of individuals who are young, and when I say young in this scenario, less than age 50, who have absolutely no other major medical problems who also develop long haulers. And that's been somewhat of a challenge uh, to us because the question is, why is it that these individuals develop this? And is there anything that we could pick up on or anything that we could define to say, these are the people who are at risk. You're young, you have no medical problems, yet you develop this. Is there something unique about you that we could learn? And the answer is probably yes, but we've just not reached that point.
0: Do we have any sense from where we sit now, people who do see long-term effects from a COVID-19 infection, how long that might stick with them? Do you you have any sense? I mean, the the people who are coming to y'all's clinic, are they going to be still needing treatment a decade from now, 20 years from now? Is, Is
1: there any way to know that? That is a great question. And unfortunately, because we're still so young in this disease, as you stated before, this has only been out now, a little over a year, uh, there's still a lot to learn. So in terms of how long people will have ongoing symptoms, we're not sure. A good piece of information and some of the good news is that we are seeing a significant portion of those individuals who even fall into the long haulers category ultimately get back close to their baseline, usually within a several month span, somewhere between three to six months. However, we have noticed some individuals that have caught the disease early on, and when I'm talking now, we're saying March and April, who are still experiencing some lingering side effects and lingering symptoms, All the way to this point and we're in January so obviously they've had symptoms you know six plus months how long will those symptoms continue to persist we're not sure but that's part of our approach to continue to follow these individuals see what their recovery process is like how long do those individuals take and if there's anything that can help us quickly and early identify individuals who will have early recovery versus those who may have prolonged symptoms
0: is this something that we've seen or that, that you see with other respiratory diseases? I'm thinking if someone has pneumonia, does it haunt them the same way that COVID-19 could?
1: Yeah, so we've seen this with other infectious states that often lead individuals into the intensive care unit. And this is often referred to as so-called post ICU syndrome or post intensive care unit syndrome where you have some of the similar symptoms the brain fog, the muscle fatigue, the joint aches, the persistent shortness of breath. And that can occur with both bacterial and viral diseases alike, as well as other infections such as fungal diseases. But the defining thing there is that most of those individuals had a critical ill state. They required a stay in the intensive care unit at some point. That's a little bit different than what we're seeing in the COVID population where both individuals who've had ICU or hospitalization requirements as well as those who did not require hospital ultimately have developed some long COVID or long hauler symptoms. That's the difference between those individuals. But yes, to answer your question, we've seen this in some ways before, but there are some subtle differences that are present.
0: This is an emerging infectious disease. And I think that has been, for the most part, our kind of public health and medical response stance. This is something acute that you catch and save for the unlucky few you recover from. I think of the kind of acute threat versus the chronic threat, heart disease, diabetes, conditions that affect lots of people's health in very negative ways, but maybe don't always get the same attention do you think of COVID as a chronic health condition based on the work that you've done with these long-haul patients? And how would it change our approach to dealing with this pandemic if we started to think of COVID like a chronic condition?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, In fact, we actually approach this in a similar fashion when we categorize these individuals. When you first catch the disease or in the early phases, we call that the acute phase. And then when you're recovering early on, it's the convalescing phase or recovery phase. And again, that's typically somewhere in those first few weeks to a month's time span. Individuals who have those persistent symptoms that last six weeks or beyond that, usually up to about three months. That's kind of the intermediate phase. Those are the individuals who've had some of the the long hauler symptoms, but they ultimately recover and return to their functional baseline status. But then beyond that, those individuals are having symptoms beyond six plus months. And this is somewhat of an arbitrary nomenclature that I'm using here. Those individuals, we start to think about them having a chronic condition. And you're absolutely right. We would think about this differently and likely have to approach this differently if we saw COVID as being a chronic problem. It very well could end up that way. My hope is, is that most individuals will ultimately return to their normal usual state of health, but only time will tell us how that's ultimately gonna turn out. As it relates to if it was a chronic problem, I think that just like we treat heart disease, diabetes, obesity, etc., cetera, those are things that we wanna to try to tackle early on and implement preventive strategies. In this case, the way we would do that is doing some of the mitigation strategies that we've always done. I think one of the things that we've learned from the pandemic is that you're going to see a lot more hand hygiene, even when masks ultimately come off, that people are going to start washing their hands a lot more and hand sanitizing, but also understanding the importance of vaccination because vaccines are helpful. I know that this can often become a controversial issue uh, in our society, but Vaccinations are one of the best ways we can fight infections when they are available. And the reasoning is, is because it is a preventive strategy. So when you're trying to tackle chronic diseases, the best approach is prevention.
0: What is your prediction for kind of how we'll start to think about COVID? as we leave the pandemic if if we do have these people who are seeing these long-term health effects um, once you know the vast majority of us have stopped thinking about it are you concerned that those people who have seen this more chronic course of disease are potentially going to be i don't know
1: left behind a little bit this is a big problem that we often have in that chronic conditions as we've stated before often become minimized we'll say things like we know individuals with high blood pressure hypertension diabetes And we just accept that as a basic way of life. But these are things that could potentially be prevented with certain behavioral changes, with certain things that we can do, like not smoking, et cetera. This principle also applies to a chronic infection process. And you're right, I do think that there may be a cohort of individuals who have a chronic problem because 80 to 85% of individuals in the country who get the disease typically resolve and return to their normal state of health. For most people, COVID has not been that big of a problem until it truly affects you or your family. But there's about 15% of individuals who have that problem where it's truly been a major issue. Again, that's a small minority, but for that small minority, this is a big issue. And it is my hope that we as a society will continue to focus on those individuals, as well as on all of those who have chronic problems, that investments are made, that more education is done, and that more preventive strategies are implemented.
0: Dr. Jermaine Jackson runs Piedmont Healthcare's COVID-19 Recovery Clinic. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening.